There's a lot about medicine today that just a generation or two ago was squarely in the realm of science fiction. The fact that many of us are wearing a watch on our wrist that can monitor not only our heart rate, but our cardiac rhythm as well, and alert us when it detects AFib, for instance. The same watch can measure pulse ox, a crucial diagnostic tool during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. The scanning that's become a routine part of diagnosis, that non-invasive examination of the structural and functional workings of the human body. That scanning was just sci-fi dreaming until relatively recently. The first clinical use of ultrasound was 1956. The first CT scans were in the early 1970s. The first MRIs were developed in the late 70s and a combined PET CT scanner showed up in clinics in the 1990s. But we were already used to the idea of being scanned. In the Star Trek universe, fans were introduced early on to a handheld scanner that measured vital signs instantly and offered differential diagnoses for the doctor to consider. The tricoder is the ultimate digital health tool. It's a scanner, an analyzer, basically a Swiss army knife for physicians. That's Dr. Bertolin Meshko, an MD, PhD trained genomicist and an engine behind the Medical Futurist Institute in Hungary and its mission to realize the promise of digital health in the 21st century. They're doing that through peer-reviewed research and popular magazine articles, books, and a slew of YouTube videos, like this one, which talks about whether the medical tricorder from Star Trek might ever be real. A working tricorder could bring on a new era in medicine. Instead of expensive machines and long waiting times, information would be available immediately. Physicians could scan patients and receive a list of diagnostic options and suggestions. Imagine the influence it could have on underdeveloped regions. It would make the biggest promise of digital health real, making patients the point of care. And just because it's coming from the realms of sci-fi, it doesn't mean it has to stay there forever. Bertolan Meshko, he's my guest today on the Hear Me Now podcast. Stay with us. On today's program, a look into the future of medicine and digital health. Now don't be scared. I'm a doctor. Futurism always seems to give us two options. The utopian future, where the friendly robot brings our slippers to us when we arrive home to our skyscraping modernist apartment. Meet George Jetson. Or we're shown the helpful robot's dystopian cousin, who spends his time disconnecting humans from their life support systems. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. On today's program, a conversation with Dr. Berlin Meshko about what he sees on the horizon for digital health and whether it represents the last best hope for the personalism that we hope is at the heart of medicine. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. It's the Hear Me Now podcast coming to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins, and I'm pleased to welcome Bertalan Meshko to the program. 
Dr. Meshko joins us from Budapest. Welcome. Thank you, Sean. So good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I know your time's limited, so I'm, I'm going to jump right into it. I, I want to say how much I appreciate the work that you're doing. I've watched some of your videos. They're really terrific. You're a great educator. I want to give you some props for that. You're doing a good job. <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. It really warms my heart. Plus, it's not an individual effort. I have a team of 14 dedicated experts from really a range of fields. And it's a group effort. That, that's why uh, we are called the Medical Futurist, and I don't you know, work on my own personal brand, but on the Medical Futurist brand. That's great. I wonder if you'll start by using the example of the artificial pancreas as an example of how emerging technologies were able to be combined and move a, a product to the market that really no one had thought about until people with diabetes really sort of took control of their future and began to work on it. The artificial pancreas is really one of the most exciting technologies out there, but not, not because of its um, technological background, at least for me, but because for me, the, the artificial pancreas has been like a Trojan horse um, for digital health. By this, I mean that this is the technology that does something quite, I think, straightforward. It, tried, it tries to replace what the pancreas is doing in an individual and for patients with diabetes, it would be crucial to have a working pancreas so the technology could replace what is not working properly in their body. But the reason why it's such an exciting technology is how a movement was born behind it. The movement is called VR Not Waiting. There's a hashtag also, hashtag VR Not Waiting. Uh, that's a group of thousands of patients who just got fed up with living with the fear of maybe dying during the night because of a lot low blood glucose sugar level, and they wanted to have the technology that would help them uh, receive alerts when something is about to go wrong. And they knew that the technology was in the making at major uh, medical technology companies, but regulators found it so hard to regulate this particular technology that it, it, they saw that it might take even more months, even some years to bring this to the market, even though the technology is ready to be deployed. So they started making their own artificial pancreas system, that essentially a do-it-yourself bionic pancreas at home. And I think that, that perfectly describes the, the picture we have to keep in mind when we want to talk about the near future of healthcare. This is how the artificial pancreas story depicts the impact empowered patients can and will have on how we deliver healthcare and how we practice medicine. If I understand it correctly, the, the technologies that were being combined here were continuous blood glucose monitoring. That's one technology. But there also existed um, I insulin pumps, but they weren't talking to one another. And the people with diabetes said they, they could be talking to one another and in effect produce an artificial pancreas. Exactly. They started working on algorithms that in the cloud would be able to connect these two devices and help make better decisions. So based on the blood glucose level, the glucose sensor can measure, the insulin pump could administer the right amount of insulin, just like how the pancreas does um, in, in their body if it's working. So the idea is, I think, simple, and the technology exists, but maybe because of regulations, maybe because of reluctance from healthcare professionals to adopt such technologies so fast, we saw a um, um, general delay 
in bringing this technology to the masses. But patients started doing that. And I, I don't, I'm not saying that this is ideal, that patients start making do-it-yourself medications and you know technologies at home. Of course not. But I perfectly understand their reasoning and, and, the, and why they have been doing this. I think I would do the same if my life or the lives of my loved ones uh, uh, were in danger. And I would know that there is a technology out there, but it might not be able to come to the market yet because of legal or business reasons, which I don't care about. I want my life and the lives of my loved ones not to depend on pure luck, but to be able to predict things or at least try to prevent, even prevent them from happening. Dr. Meshko, the role that artificial intelligence plays in medicine in the future is an interesting question because it seems obvious that it's going to be a crucial part of medicine. And yet, it seems to threaten the personalism that is at the heart of medicine today or has been traditionally at the heart of medicine. Can you talk a little bit about that tension between having a physician who knows you, who understands you, with whom you have a relationship, balance that with um, dealing with a digital algorithm that's looking for information that perhaps may get passed on to a human physician. But in the beginning, the first encounter is with some sort of bot. Well, to be honest, you poke the monster with this question. I don't think we have enough time right now as medical professionals to provide that personal care you have been talking about. Just simply, I mean, have you ever had an experience in healthcare saying that, wow, that was just amazing. It felt like science fiction. I, My physician could devote so much time and attention to me. I mean, maybe a few patients say that, but the vast majority of patients actually never say this. I think we have lost that personalization, the, the individual perspectives in healthcare because of, I think, as society, how we have made the profession of being a, a healthcare professional really challenging from a legal perspective, ethical perspective, from operational perspectives. We've made it a, a job that's full of administration, some of that, that taking place on paper still, mm -hmm. not in digital forms. And I'm pretty sure that if you, if you show a medical student today what kind of daily job they would have 30 years from now, being, again, spending more than half of their time on administration, I think many of them would leave medical school. So... I'm happy to jump into this topic, but I need to say out loud the vision we share at the Medical Futurist about the role artificial neurointelligence will play in medicine, but which is that only with AI we have a chance, I would say as a romantic type of person, a historical opportunity to bring back that personal touch, that mm. human touch that we have lost in the last couple of decades. Without AI, I simply don't see how physicians could spend more time on their patients instead of administration or looking at interfaces, typing in data, how they could spend enough time with their patients to build trust and com with compassion and empathy. I don't see without AI how they could deal with billing and, and uh, all the paperwork uh, that's not even around medical records, but all the rest uh, around the healthcare process. I don't see how they could make better medical decisions. I don't see how physicians could be really up to date without the help of AI when there are 33 million medical papers out there and 1.52 million papers coming out every year. So I think AI is our last resort 
in in trying to create a vision where physicians and patients spend time together they have a they can build a relationship based on trust they can have a real life you know connection and eye a face uh, eye to eye contact and a normal discussion while in the meantime they are being surrounded by advanced seamless and even invisible technologies such as artificial neural intelligence so summing it up and i i get what you said because i get this many times from medical professionals they have fear they have a fear mm-hmm. about being replaced by automation because you see headlines and news saying that this and that ai algorithm again outperformed human physicians that's nonsense all those studies have taken place on clean data on uh, retrospectively looking back physicians would be much better if they could look back not have to treat patients live as they come in plus clinical life is quite diverse it doesn't happen on clean data i'm not saying that ai is not going not going to be amazing and its potentials have been skyrocketing i it, i give you that but it's about i think ai will not replace physicians but those physicians that use ai will replace those that don't and, and that's the rule that i keep in mind while doing studies and and discussing the role of ai with with healthcare professionals and government officials the role that chatbots could play in having an initial sort of diagnostic screening visit with a patient seems like a benign use of this technology but probably one that speaks exactly to the issue that you're bringing up which is there's no real good reason why a human being needs to ask those questions but the answer should get flagged and a human being should pay attention when a chatbot identifies something that's or the algorithm identifies an issue that needs attention absolutely that 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 would be the ideal case and of course chatbots cannot provide the same level of empathy attention uh, the human touch obviously that's out of the question but that's the question people usually ask when it comes to talking about chatbots the real question we have to ask ourselves is whether an ai based chatbot is better than having no chance to have a conversation with anything or anyone at all because that's the real question we have to ask ourselves 5 million healthcare workers are missing worldwide according to the the world health organization no matter how amazing technologies we come up with in medical education we will not be able to train as many medical professionals as we need plus the number of patients needing uh, access to healthcare or or um expert review from medical professionals has been increasing not because there are more patients but because more patients have access to care therefore as you see there is a gap that's getting wider and wider and at mm-hmm. some point you have to say out loud that you and I I think we'll always live in a world with doctor shortages so when you have to wait for um, an appointment that might take place in 2 3 4 weeks or even more from now on is it better to have any chance to talk to a chatbot that you know is a chatbot it's ai based you know it's not a human being but it gives you a more than zero level of comfort it will keep you in conversations especially when it comes to appointments about mental health at the end of the, those virtual sessions by the time you can meet a physician in in per person the chatbot can create a report about your case to help to support that physician so is it better than not being able to have a conversation with anyone before getting to that appointment again weeks from now and i think of course it's a poetic question the answer is of course it's better to have some kind of conversation and for that chatbots have been increasing have been improving 
they will not be able to provide empathy because empathy is reflective. I feel empathy on you because I trust you. And if I know you are an AI sentient being or some kind of creature, I won't trust you, so I won't feel empathy. That's how simple the human mind is. But it's still better than not having any kind of conversation. Hmm. If I've read your CV correctly, your training is in genomics. Is, is that right? Yes, I, I graduated as a general medical professional, a physician, but then I did my PhD training in clinical genomics. So obviously this is going to be a field that is only going to exponentially become more important, um, whether it's designing pharmaceuticals for people based on their, their DNA, um, designing specific treatments for them, you know, aligning chemotherapy to the particular type of ailment that they're suffering from. Tell me about, as a, as a person who has studied this and who sort of lives and breathes the future of medicine, what do you see in genomics in the next 20 years? It's a really good question. At the same time, it's really challenging for me to answer that properly because as someone coming from the, the genomic side of life science research, um, I think that's the field where I, it's, it is the hardest for me to be objective. So 20 years ago, you, would, you, could ask, you could have asked anyone in the field of genomics and they would have told you that, wow, in 20 years, we would have the personal genome sequences of everyone in the world and we would be able to, uh, to draw conclusions from that, clinical conclusions. While in fact, um, it's very far from, from that case. But there are two sides here. One side is about the, the consumer part of genomics, meaning that Consumers around the world can now pay for direct-to-consumer genomic tests. Some of those are specific focus tests, uh, focusing on a cer certain conditions. Some of those are whole genome sequencing services. They get a lot of data in return, and maybe some points of those data sets can be used for clinical decisions or better lifestyle decisions. I've done that myself many times. I've tested about 10 genetic tests. I had my genome sequenced. I think I, I've learned plenty of useful things in my life about what kind of medical conditions I have a higher risk for than my general population. Or the biggest thing I think was when I learned about which medications would cause me side effects. Even if my doctor doesn't make a, a, a mistake when prescribing that medication to me, or I don't make a mistake while taking the medication in the prescribed dosage, but that's how different I am metabolically and genomically that that medication in that evidence-based dosage still might lead to side effects or hospitalization. These are very important points of information, but you have to go after those yourself as a consumer. And this, the other side of the story is when only medical professionals can prescribe genetic tests or, or whole genome sequencing services. And we've seen hundreds of amazing stories about how whole genome sequencing has been helping save uh, lives of babies with rare conditions how genomic tests could help uh, support precision medicine, especially for cancer patients, where there are now more and more precision treatments, uh, meaning that there are treatments made for the exact type of mutation their cancerous tissue has. That, that's pretty mind-blowing, and it's an amazing scientific achievement. But 
it just the number is not big enough about the examples you see on the market and in evidence-based studies. And maybe I'm saying this because I come from that space and we had such huge hopes and dreams when the uh, the personal genome project and the human genome project were completed. We are very far from that dream and that and those hopes, but the evidence is growing. There are thousands of studies proving the point that in certain very much specified cases, genome sequencing or genetic testing uh, can be beneficial for patients, but it's still quite expensive. It's still not widespread enough. So um, I guess in 20 years, it, it should be normal to be able to have your genome sequenced for a really, really low price, not like today. I mean, it used to be billions of dollars literally 20 years ago, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars about 10 years ago. Now it's around maybe five, six hundred dollars, and it should it should go around the the cost of a general blood test in twenty years from now. But the the real the what the point that has importance here would be around analytics, using artificial narrow intelligence to get something I mean meaningful out of that really huge amount of data to give me a list of things I shouldn't do in my lifestyle or a list of things my physician should keep in mind from medication sensitivity to risks for medical conditions that we can work with. Because right now, it's just it's more like opportunistic how much info I can obtain from those reports. But it should be a part of everyday healthcare in, in 20 years from now. But again, it's a very brave prediction because 20 years ago, we had even higher dreams and hopes than we would have today. It also speaks to an issue, I think, of medical literacy. It sort of demands that an individual consumer understand enough to know how the test results, this fog of data that can encircle you, how to pick out the parts that are important and not important, not to get thrown off by the zebras, but to focus on the horses, maybe. That requires some literacy, and I'm not sure any of us are there yet. Exactly. I think we are far away from that. And I've been thinking about how to phrase that if the progress of medicine would be more like static, so the information, the knowledge, the experience medical professionals have would not improve at an exponential rate, then maybe they could be the ideal candidates for helping their patients get better at health literacy, to be able to understand the information they get from the medical professionals. But the, the, this field has been progressing at such an unprecedented level that even for medical professionals, it's getting, I think, increasingly more challenging to, to deal with the data and the information that, that must be part of their everyday jobs. The, they cannot read all the medical studies, they cannot learn to use all the innovations and, and uh, all the technologies coming to their practices, but they, of course, the vast majority of them are trying to stay up to date. But to, to at the same time, to be able to guide their patients through this mass of information, I think it's almost a mission impossible. And it's just health literacy. I also have to discuss, we also have to discuss digital literacy, which is a different thing. It's, it's more mm. about not just being able to understand the information you get, but you, the, the ability to deal with the digital channels or the technologies you have to use while obtaining that information. Mm. And that's why um, uh, public health researchers have been saying for at least a decade that we have two challenges in this space, the health literacy and digital literacy. 
And the best examples I've seen that I'm not saying solved this, these issues, but I think they, those were great contributions to the, the final solution, uh, took place in uh, New Zealand and Australia, where they trained an army of uh, so-called digital health mentors. So people, mm -hmm. professionals, who could go to low resource regions in the, in the country uh, to help those people in need about trying to improve their digital health literacy. For example, trying to help them deal with the devices they already have. Because the solution is not about giving patients more and more technologies to deal with. It's about at least helping them learn to use those they have already. If they have a, any kind of smartphone, at least it means they have access to a vast array of free applications, many of them being evidence-based, that could be used to improve their lifestyle or health or medical decisions or manage disease management in general. So it's maybe a bit surprisingly, the, the solution for such a technological issue, digital health literacy, lies in uh, personal connections between people and a person helping another person learn to deal with the technologies they already have. I could very easily see the advent of a new profession, you know, a sort of medical digital doula or... <laughs> yeah, it's, a good, it's a great idea. You know, someone whose job it is not to prescribe, not to treat, but to help explain the technology. It's funny that you are saying this now because we came up with analysis about futuristic professions we might have in a decade or so. And one of a few of those were like uh, examples like um, a health navigator, exactly what you described. Mm -hmm. uh, we had an idea about a digital health analyst who is helping physicians deal with the data patients bring in to the practices. One was uh, an algorithm trainer. There was a chatbot trainer as well. So yeah, I think it makes sense to, to uh, come up with such futuristic professions because we will not be able to, to retrain those people who work in healthcare already, but we will, have, we will need new people who can dive into this field and connect the dots that uh, people in the field already haven't been able to connect. Dr. Meshko, tell me about the role that science fiction plays in your imagination. <laughs> well, thank you for asking that. Um, science fiction is my major source of inspiration, not just today in my professional job, but I think since I was a kid, like six years old, I've been watching and reading science fiction, uh, everything, really, on a <laughs> huge range of genre. I've been trying to digest everything that's out there. And the reason why is, I think, is why I love science fiction is that it makes you ask the, the what-if question. I know it's not as exciting as it is for me, but playing with the what-if question, I think, gradually helps prepare for whatever is coming next. And by prepare, I don't just mean that prepare operationally and cognitively, but prepare emotionally. And when you can prepare for something emotionally and when that thing happens or takes place, I think you are in a better position to deal with it. Because usually the reason why we are reluctant to change or we are slow at adopting innovations lies in our range of emotions that we feel we might get replaced. So we just reject something out of the blue, if it's a technology, for example. Or we might feel that we can't learn that fast enough. But these things are usually just emotions. And if we can emotionally prepare, I think we, we get into a better position. And playing with the what-if question for like three decades now has been an amazing experience for me. And I, I'm very happy and I'm very fortunate 
to be able to do this as part of my daily job because part of my job is to play with the what-if question, come up with visions, and then examine which visions would be beneficial for, for most of the people working in, working for healthcare. And then uh, the operational part is trying to find out, well, how can we get to those desired visions and not the other ones around? Hmm. Care to tell us some of your favorite? Oh, that's not a fair question to ask. <laughs> how can someone come up with, like, who, who is my favorite FC Barcelona player? <laughs> I could never tell, but Busquets, but I could never tell. Of course, of course, I know I, I have to be able to come down to a few. Well, in in books, I've I have grown up on books from Stanislav Lem, the Polish science fiction writer. Thus, Solaris is far the biggest, the, the book that, has had, that have, has had the biggest impact on my life, on my way of thinking, and on me becoming a futurist, actually. Mm. I, I, I reread that book, Solaris, every single year, and it gives me something new every single time. Otherwise, everything from, um, from Arthur C. Clarke, literally everything. Um, therefore, it's quite easy to say, 2001 A Space Odyssey has been my favorite movie, plus book at the same time. In movies, I would say Interstellar has had the biggest impact on me. I, I've never anticipated a movie more in my life than that one. Um, in book again, Ready Player One from the recent few years. Mm -hmm. I almost missed uh, boarding one of my flights because <laughs> of the book, uh, literally. So... I could go on, but maybe Solaris, uh, A Space Odyssey, Ready Player One. Um, yeah, that, these would be my that's, favorite. That's one. a pretty good recommendation for reading. <laughs> um, one of the aspects of, of this glut of data that troubles me is the role that um, genomic information will play in the decision-making of health insurance companies if they know a lot about us, are they going to start ruling out future possible conditions based on what they realize is hidden in our data? That seems like a frightening prospect. Yeah, quite understandably. I think if, it, if this decision depends on the, the ethics of um, health insurance companies, then they would go for it. But fortunately, that's not the case. Uh, I think one of the best laws in the world is in the US, um, that's called the GINA, the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, that actually forbids uh, patients uh, to share their, the, re the results of their genomic reports with either their employers or their health insurance companies. Plus, these employers and health insurance companies must not ask for such results. But even if a patient would like to share the results with either of those, they cannot. It's forbidden. And I think that's exactly what we have to do. So the use of advanced technologies will lead to such ethical uh, questions, Such it will have such legal and social implications that we cannot um, put this responsibility uh, into the hands of companies, you know, businesses, startups, health insurance companies. We just shouldn't do that because they will keep on uh, thinking about the business side of the question. I think this is why we need regulators, policymakers, healthcare decision makers who are extremely knowledgeable about digital health and the impact these technologies would have on medicine and healthcare, the potential social, legal, impl ethical implications, and they have to be aware of where these technologies can lead to. And then if any of these leads to a 
such a dystopic picture like the one you described, then I think they have to come up with the right range of regulations that would make sure that it just won't take place. Hmm. In that case, with the GINA law, it won't take place. Health insurance companies cannot and must not use such points of information coming from genomic test results. The other dystopian view that I want to ask you about is the related to the costs and the economics of some of this technology is, is there a way to guarantee that um, people without great means are going to be able to take advantage of this, these advances? Um, or is this, is this technology only there for, for the rich? Well, this is a very hard question to ask. And I think there are two sides to that story. One side is around the privacy issue that it's impossible to guarantee anything because usually the way people try to address this issue is by asking the question, is it possible to keep our privacy intact in the digital health revolution? And of course not, because that's not the right question to ask. I think the right question we have to ask ourselves now is whether how much of my privacy I'm willing to exchange for a chance, I'm willing to give up in exchange mm. for a chance for a longer and healthier life. Mm. And as long as I'm the one making that decision, ethically and legally, I should be fine. When a healthcare government or a health insurance company wants to make that decision over my shoulders, then we have an issue. And the other side of the same story is around just what you asked at the end of your question about the access to care. And the truth is that right now, the uh, top 1% wealthiest Americans live 10 years longer already than the bottom 1%, just based on general income. When the issue becomes more centered around, well, I can access um, 3D bioprinted liver tissue, but you have to wait for an organ transplantation for someone to die, then I have quite an advantage over you. If I can buy an exoskeleton, a robotic structure around my body so I can go back to work after an accident much, much sooner than you can, again, I have a competitive advantage. And I think this is, I mean, obviously something we cannot allow to happen, but nobody can guarantee anything. And if I may add one more thing to, the, to, the, to this discussion, that, that would be that I, I see there are such issues from legal to privacy, ethical challenge. I see that. But we have to say out loud that it, it, becomes, it, it gradually becomes impossible to care for patients without a huge amount of technologies taking place in that process without artificial narrow intelligence, variables, health sensors, portable diagnostic devices, analytical services, electronic medical records, it becomes impossible to, to help them live longer and healthier lives. So we will, I can, I can guarantee one thing, we will keep on using more and more of these technologies, but the, the contribution, at least we at the Medical Futurist try to, to provide to that, is a general understanding of where these, the use of these technologies can lead to, how we can try to minimize the risk of losing, losing privacy, how we can minimize the risk of legal consequences or ethical issues, how we can train or educate policymakers and regulators to become much more knowledgeable about regulating these really advanced technologies, how we can push innovators and technologies themselves to only create technologies that meet uh, an unmet patient or mm -hmm. clinical need. We have to educate patients to understand how to become proactive, empowered patients. We have to help physicians 
uh, while they have their role is is going through a shift from being the key holder to the ivory tower of medicine to becoming a guide for their patients in the jungle of information. I think that's the longest uh, sentence I've ever <laughs> used. But to sum, but to sum it up, it, nobody can guarantee anything. Just the, the only thing that the progress is inevitable. But if you are knowledgeable enough, then I trust ourselves enough to say out loud that we will be able to deal with these challenges. And while we are living longer and healthier lives, let's deal with ethical, social, and legal implications while having that experience. Right, right. Let's trust one another. Um, as Before I say goodbye to you, I want to ask one question that I hope will, will give you some freedom to exercise your science fiction chops, and that's, can you, can you describe for me the hospital of the future? Oh, okay. I, I don't think you will like my answer, but um, because the, the, the end story of digital health is making patients the point of care. So I would say the story is quite short because I am going to be the hospital, but, but I guess that's not what you're interested <laughs> in. So let me dive into that. Uh, and if you don't mind, I will describe a healthcare experience like 20 years from Great. now. Because right now you have to passively wait for a medical symptom to appear and a symptom to appear and only then you ask for medical help by going to a point of care, to a healthcare institution. And then you have to wait and meet other sick patients and then maybe they treat you in the right way and you get the right diagnosis and then the right treatment, not in the customized dosage you need, but you know, some kind of dosage, some kind of treatment that might work. Usually it works. So maybe it will work for you too. I'm sorry for being that sarcastic about today's healthcare, but that's the practical reality of it. So 20 years, um, I'm not obsessed about my health, but I use um, like a health tracker or a, um, like a chest patch or a digital tattoo or a smartwatch, something like that to measure data. I don't deal with it, but when there is something wrong or about to go wrong, it lets me know. I don't have the, the luxury of being able to talk to a physician right away, like today, it's a luxury, but I can talk to a chatbot and that it can help me um, draw conclusions from analyzing the data that just gave that alert about you know the warning sign. Maybe it lets me know that, well, it might be something we should deal with, so it finds an appointment for me uh, based on the my personal features and characteristics and habits and needs um, in my local, in my area to a physician that it thinks I would like. And then we meet because it's a, it requires a physical examination. So we have to meet in person. By the time I arrive to the point of care, all my data uh, arrived before me. So they could see what kind of a case we might have here. When we have a diagnosis, aided by artificial narrow intelligence, because no, I, I wouldn't expect my physician to, to have read 35 or even 50 million medical studies and papers by then. So aided by AI, we would have a, the right diagnosis. I would have a prescription that might be 3D printed at my local pharmacy in a customized dosage, because we know that based on my genomic profile that I would have side effects uh, for a different dosage. So let's make sure that my condition is being treated properly without having any side effects or uh, unnecessary hospitalization. And I can leave the point of care immediately because there is no way, no, no reason to stay there. Almost every treatment takes place at home or wherever patients are. And I'm being monitored uh, remotely through my data. An AI system can help me 
um, make better decisions in my lifestyle. I still keep control over this. So if I want to have a glass of wine, I can make the decision, but I have to know about the potential disadvantages based on that decision. But I still, I'm still the one making those decisions. But I, give, I have a chance to live a longer and healthier life because we can prevent diseases from happening. We can catch them, if not, as early as possible. And I could get monitored remotely. My data would arrive to the point of care before I do. And in a sense, I would feel like my life doesn't depend on pure luck. I have every chance to contribute to it. And if I contribute with even more time, effort and money, I might even have a chance for a longer, an even longer and healthier life. And I think where this story should end is that so in 20 years in my life, I can focus on whatever makes me happy, not managing a disease or obsessively trying to live a healthy life. I'm being cared for. I'm being helped about that. So I can dedicate time to where it's needed. Because let's be honest, we people have not been so successful or efficient at managing our health or disease. So let's allow people not to focus on that, but to focus on what makes them exceptional human beings. Bertalan Meshko, thank you for helping us think about the future of medicine. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Bertalan Meshko is the medical futurist and the director of the Medical Futurist Institute in Budapest on the banks of the beautiful blue Danube. You'll find links to The Medical Futurist on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord, Melody Fawcett, and Victoria Johnson. We have research help from medical librarians Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, Carrie Grinstead, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Subscribe if you haven't already, and be sure to connect with us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. And we always love to hear from you. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well.